Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Lisa McCormick from the University of Edinburgh about performing civility, international competitions in classical music. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Lisa McCormick, who is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Edinburgh, about her new book, Performing Civility, International Competitions in Classical Music. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. So this is a really uh, fascinating book. It's um, full of, uh, I think, really important questions for the general sociology of culture, but also it's got some really kind of fine-grained detail about both music competitions and then the kind of broader contemporary classical uh, music world as well. So it, it's a really rich and really interesting book. And I suppose the place to start is about where the book came from, um, you know, perhaps in terms uh, of you talking through your own experience in this world and then how you came to write about it as an academic. Okay. Well, music has always been a part of my life. I started playing the piano when I was two and I started playing the cello when I was four. And um, I actually entered my first music competition at age four. And uh, because I was the youngest competitor that year, I found my way into the newspaper, the local newspaper. Um, that way. And so from then on, I was in competitions regularly. And it was just a fact of life for me as a serious music student. And, um, and so it it was uh, something that, you know, I had a, you know, a, a difficult relationship with, because I knew it was making me better. And yet it was very difficult to be putting myself out there um, in that way to be judged regularly. Um, and uh, I was very relieved by the time I got to uh, music school at the undergraduate level because I realized that if I um, specialized in contemporary music, which became my passion, I maybe didn't have to put myself through that in order to have a career. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, through various twists and turns of fate, I wound up becoming a, a sociologist and I'd long forgotten competitions. But one day I was watching American Idol and I thought, wait a minute. 
I know what's going on here. And it reminded me of how much um, everybody in the music world uh, is angry about competitions all the time, how controversial they are and uh, what it is like to, to go through them. And, and it, it was just this eureka moment where I knew I could write something big, something serious um, that had, hadn't been done before and that needed to be said um, about the world of music. Yeah, that, um, I suppose, disgruntlement or, or un- unhappiness uh, with competitions is something that is really kind of central and important to the book. Um, and it's something that I think is in, is in tension to some of the ways that competitions like to kind of talk about themselves as mm-hmm. well. And, and you deal with this a little bit in the introduction through um, both your theoretical perspective and then some central concepts. And the key one of these, which is obviously in the title, is this idea about civility. So what are you talking about when you use the term civility and, and why is it so central to your your understanding of uh, contemporary classical competitions? Right. Well, um, the reason why it's so central <clears throat> is because um, as much as I, I might have been slightly disgruntled or had a difficult relationship, we're all scarred by these experiences, even when we do well, right? I was... I still won a lot of competitions. I had several trophies to show on the mantelpiece. I was, I, you know, was best cellist in Canada at age 14. Um, and yet it is something that you carry with you uh, uh, through your life. So it, there, uh, it was more my curiosity about why it is that we have to have them. Why has it become so central to music life? Why is it that so many people have difficulties with it? And when you ask any professional musician what they think about them, why do they want to disown their involvement with it? And my, uh, uh, the more I thought about it, the more time I spent researching it as a sociologist, I realized it's true what they say about it being not just about music. And that's part of where the frustration comes from, is that it's not enough about music when it should be about music. But if it's not about music, what else is it about? And I found that prestige wasn't what it was about all the time because the prestige was actually quite fragile um, and questioned at every turn. Um, and so what I what I realized um, over time was that there was this higher aspiration um, that was driving the founding of these um, institutions, these organizations, um, and, and also the principles that they were trying to achieve in the way that they'd set them up and the way that they devised the rules was more about civility. And I was using civility in two senses, in terms of what the organization is and what the function of competitions are in the music world. I was thinking about it mainly in terms of the cultural codes and the integrative patterns um, as well as the institutional procedures that characterize this social realm we could call the civil sphere. And in a way, this is why competitions were special, is because it's a place in the music world where everybody thought fairness mattered, whereas fairness is not really what matters in other realms of musical life. It's about who is the best and what best serves the art, not about whether rules have been respected. Um, and so um, I, I was, I think, this was a, a source of the tension and the, the controversy that was going on. But I was also keen to understand um, civility in the sense, uh, more in the sense of Norbert Elias's civilizing process where, you know, Western classical music and these great canonical works are seen as particular um, forms of 
you know, rationality and emotional control, but also emotional expression of a certain kind. And so understanding how these two things work together, how it is that musicians can show their civility in both senses of, of having control over the body and control over emotions, but also understanding how to um, interact with opponents in this very high stakes environment. Uh, and this obviously relates to the idea of the performance perspective, which is the uh, kind of theoretical um, framework that you use. And you devote a bit of time both at the end of the book and at the beginning of the book to explaining that. Um, so why is that your, your preferred approach for understanding these kind of exercises in, uh, in, in civility? Oh, yes. Well, I, uh, there were two reasons really driving uh, the, the choice of the performance perspective. So um, one, one aspect is that, you know, competitions, what are they judging? Music competitions are judging performance. So if this isn't central to your talent framework, then what are you doing? And I also found that it was completely unsatisfactory to go to the usual kinds of concepts that sociologists would grab for being, you know, this is about marketization um, and, you know, the professionalization of an industry. That's why there's more competitions. Well, the more you looked at that kind of argument, the more it didn't hold up. And as I mentioned earlier, the prestige argument wasn't holding up because there was so much doubt about whether or not these mechanisms were actually working to identify talent. So a performance perspective lent itself well because it was highlighting what was kind of the central concern for the music world and especially for these institutions. And in terms of um, the sociological kind of payoff, analytical payoff, um, it, it allowed me to remember power, but not reduce everything to power. So uh, a, a kind of social performance perspective that's based on the cultural pragmatic um, first um, uh, developed uh, by Jeffrey Alexander, uh, allowed me to uh, bring into play six elements of performance, one of which is power, uh, which gave me, I, I thought, more leverage in terms of understanding what's going on. The book then follows, uh, I suppose, kind of uh, two parts. One is to really give us a, a history and to situate the competition and then is to think through um, the various um, characters or, or participants, both competitors, jurors and, and audiences. Yes. And I wonder if we, we might take a bit of time to think through what you do in Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, which is explain um, both the rise of um, the music competition, the kind of challenges and um, almost the kind of uh, you know breaking points for these competitions and then how they were changed, reconfigured, um, and how they now narrate themselves, particularly using that idea of civility. Yes. Well, um, uh, the, in a sense, the history part of the, um, of the study, of the research, was motivated um, to answer the production of culture people. I, I, I wanted to make sure that I had a, a solid understanding of why it is that competitions look the way they do today um, by going back and trying to understand their predecessors. And, you know, of course, this is a very long history uh, for if you want to think about art music, um, you know, there were competitions in ancient Greece that were, you know, poetry, sung poetry. Um, I, I became very interested in the role of competitions in um, the confraternities in, in 
uh, medieval Europe. That's the other kind of predecessor. But those were very different beasts um, because that was, um, you know, centered around feast days. Um, these were religious societies. And it was because musicians tended to be outcasts that their way of celebrating a saint's uh, feast day and belonging to the society that would give them burial rites um, it, it kind of made sense for them to make this their major event um, when they gathered once a year. And these became international um, and all that. And those morphed into more uh, trade union type organizations over the centuries. But that has very little relationship with what it is that all musicians today think of as a music competition, because then it was more the music that was being judged. Now it's more the performance being judged. And this new creation of an organization that exists for the sole purpose of having an event where people apply to participate and a jury of international um, figures uh, are, are invited to, to uh, make uh, the deliberations and, and choose winners. This was invented uh, at the same historical moment as the, um, uh, the, the Olympics uh, uh, re, uh, reinvention in, in the 1890s and also the Venice Biennale. So there was kind of a moment of internationalism that was happening then. Um, and this is, I think, the important kind of uh, 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 turning point in the history of competitions because it thinks of itself as primarily bureaucratic and as open to all musicians. Uh, the only restriction is age, but they can be um, any any nationality, any ethnicity, any religion, which was very important at that time, um, and, and they would be judged according to how well they played. And it also didn't matter where they studied. So um, this was an important turning point, and this became the kind of format that, you know, was changed because, um, you know, the world changed um, and the macro-political context changed. But the idea of this bureaucratic organization remained, but it was always slightly susceptible to um, polluting influences, right? The the idea of, of being open to anyone from anywhere in the world was there, and yet because they tended to be founded by these charismatic figures, often as a kind of protest towards what they thought of as a selection mechanism that was not often finding great talent and, and disenfranchising um, or, or overlooking um, some portion of the music population, um, they 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 um, tended to to operate independently, which was great. But it also made them susceptible to becoming new um, kind of centers of of clientelism, um, but also getting caught up in um, political rivalries. How then does this um, sort of challenge? Um get overcome what what kind of things do, do we see in um the contemporary competition that that sort of answer those uh, challenges and criticisms um one, one of the things you talk about in the third chapter um is the kind of stories that um competitions try and tell about themselves versus the kind of presentation that we see in in the media and then later on you know that these kind of things get raised um with individual um competitors or jurors or, or audiences kind of critiques too. Right. So there were kind of uh, uh, what I thought was interesting and what I, uh, I, I tried to do in the book was to have both a kind of um, institutional story, but then also the kind of public 
um, cultural story of how um, how how competitions turn things around because in the first part of the 20th century they really were um, uh, susceptible to uh, becoming an arena in which cultural superiority um, was trying to be was demonstrated by um, hostile uh, countries especially you know as the Cold War was was uh, 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 was starting to gather steam in the late 50s and early 60s it was all about East versus West. But in the 50s, with the founding of uh, uh, the World Federation of International Music Competitions, there was this institutional commitment to cleaning up the act and preventing politics and clientelism from ruining what could be a really important um, and uh, force function in the music world. So there was this story that I think is kind of... Um, uh, 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 amazingly impressive that all of these organizations kind of got together and decided we should police ourselves and make sure that we don't um, uh, we don't let these polluting influences take control. So that was going on behind the scenes, but kind of in front of the world um, in the way that um, these events have always been intended to be media events attended by a general public. You know, these aren't auditions. Um, behind closed doors, they want a public there to be able to see the selection of of the ultimate winner. And of course, the the press need to be there um, to to make sure that the world um, is informed of this great talent that competitions are, are, see themselves as um, as existing to find. Um, <clears throat> Hopefully, um, sometimes. Uh, so, uh, uh, what I what I've noticed in looking at um, uh, a lot of the famous competitions is that they, of course, present themselves like competitions are also themselves performing, and so in their uh, publicity materials and in the way that they present themselves to funding bodies, to other cultural organizations, to um, government organizations, to their peers, to the music world, they they want to be seen as the this organization that provides this forum where uh, you know a great artist can be found, and that this is a, a very um, moving and uh, 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 powerful ritual um, where everybody can be involved and and uh, enjoy this kind of special moment of a star being born. That is how they want to be seen. That is what they want to happen. But of course, the press are want to be more than just witnesses to this. They have their own independent set of ideas of what great artists are. They also have their own means of publicizing who they think was playing well in this um, in this uh, particular event. And they also, as journalists, tend to have a critical eye um, towards these um, institutions. And so they're, they're not shy about um, questioning whether the this the organizations are are performing this role, whether they might um, be uh, uh, ruining classical music, uh, damaging young performers, and uh, overall encouraging, shall we say, um, unfortunate trends, conservatism in the repertoire, expectations of perfection in, in the audience. And so the, the, the journalists have their own kind of default narrative framework where they are inclined to have a, a profaning discourse, a cynical discourse, but sometimes they get caught up in the excitement too. And they see um, the, the, um, the, the, the event unfolding in terms of a story, either this m mystical ritual where this amazing talent 
talent of the generation is found, or they can see um, the, the, the competition as this kind of symbolic forum where um, politics is transcended through this great music and these acts of civility. And the most famous example for that is uh, Van Cliburn, a Texan, winning the first Tchaikovsky competition in 1958. Yeah, you, you devote um, quite a bit of discussion to that. And it's really interesting, um, the comparisons you draw with things like sport and um, the ideas of kind of masculinized um, competition and combat and and these kinds of things. It, it, it's yeah, it's a really interesting um, example of of precisely that tension um, between these different ways of narrating the competitions. We, we might turn now to how some of these ideas get played out on um, an individual level as the rest of the book moves through um, the questions of the competitors. Um, the jurors and the kind of the public and the audience um, that are bound up with these competitions. So to start with the competitors, who who are these people? You, you know, you kind of list um, a series of ideal types, prodigies, virtuosos, heroes, intellectuals. Um, and how is gender important to understanding uh, the experience of the competitor? Uh, well, I was uh, interested in in that chapter, that big chapter, to get into uh, a, a kind of Goffmanian analysis mm. of how competitors present themselves in this context. Because you know, when we're talking about international competitions, we're talking about the highest level. These aren't young people; like they are young people, but you know, they're not kids. Yeah. Uh, 18 to 32 year olds, some of whom are already professional um, and who have dedicated their lives to studying this instrument or playing, you know, quartets. And, and, and so they, they think very carefully about what they're doing. And I wanted to get inside how it is that they present themselves in this uh, context because it's, it should be the same as every other performance con uh, context they encounter, and yet it isn't. Because it, it, what, what kept coming up and talking to them is how they felt like they were compromising their morals. Um, but what I saw from uh, the way that, um, in looking at what they use, their, both their musical means of production, their choice of what they play and how they play it, as well as how they present themselves physically on stage, um, there is kind of a, a set of ideas or images or notions of genius that they kept kind of indexing, that they were, um, that they were uh, trying to embody so that the audience and the jury could recognize that they might be deserving of a title. And the, the ones that I found weren't most common, these notions of genius that I just saw coming out all the time, and that audience members or other competitors would say when this person would come on stage and play certain pieces, they'd say, oh, look at his choices for, you know, round three he definitely wants to be seen as an intellectual. So this was this was how people were spoken of. And also, you know, through my um, own experience, this is what I'd seen my whole life is the, the kind of strategies for being recognized as a genius. But also what came through in, um, in, in observing this uh, more, more systematically was um, uh, how some of these notions of genius are, uh, are more easily embodied by men than by women. Um, and when it came to recognizing 
uh, a female performer's greatness. There were some images that came up all the time and some that just they, they kind of could never uh, 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 be associated with them. So it's one thing for women to, to, to be a prodigy because, you know, being young and small and seeming to be moved by something else was uh, a very common occurrence. Um, and, and also very virtuosic women uh, as a kind of fire-breathing virtuoso happened. But this tended to be spoken of um, in terms of, of them being uh, seductress. Whereas the more kind of intellectual idea of genius, it was very difficult for women to engage and and, um, and there was kind of a resistance amongst the audience to, to recognizing women in this way. Yeah, the, the, the chapter's full of these really brilliant quotes about the, the unbelievably kind of um, minutiae of things like bowing and the decision to bow or not bow and, oh. you know, like how people's particular dress styles gave out codes that they, you know, perhaps weren't serious musicians so shouldn't be judged in a particular way. And what's really interesting about the richness of the empirical material is it really kind of um, <clears throat> challenges the attempts at kind of bureaucracy and transparency in judging because there are lots of little, you know, kind of codes that are referred to about, you know, jurors basically making decisions almost on how someone carries themselves onto stage and performers talking about, you know, getting the edge because of, you know, the way they, you know, their deportment or, or, or something like this. So, and to move on, you know, to our questions about, about jurors is like, how are jurors kind of making these judgments? How do they do the, the act of commensuration between these unbelievably, you know, talented and, and highly skilled people. Mm. Well, and that was the other um, kind of fascinating finding was that, you know, I was talking to judges who are, again, at the very top of their field, you know, have, our entire lives have been spent studying this repertoire. Um, they, you know, they're famous recording artists, concert artists, famous teachers, all this. Uh, and yet uh, when it comes to judging, it's not something they find easy to do. They really struggle with it, not because they don't know what they think. Of course, they know what they think. Um, but there's something, again, about the context that problematizes what they do every day for a living. Um, and, and the way that I explained this was um, by drawing from Hespelin's wonderful analysis of commensuration. So I, uh, uh, in, in interviewing um, uh, jurors, I found that there were kind of three problems that they kept struggling with. And also, you know, talking to directors about how they've tried to manage and come up with better uh, voting systems. There are just kind of three unavoidable problems or challenges, if you will, uh, when it comes to judging. Um, and the, the, the first one was that um, uh, jurors were asked to translate their impression of somebody's playing into a score, uh, into a numerical figure. And that is uh, a, a, a difficult process because there's no perfect way to codify that. And because these are elites at the top of their field, it's kind of insulting to try to codify it for these people. So um, in a sense, there's it's impossible to standardize um, and and even within a competition, but there's definitely no standardization across competitions either. So you have this, this issue come up immediately that um, no matter how many uh, competitions you've judged at the highest level, um, each one is going to be different and each, uh, each competition might change over time. So there's no um, being able to accumulate experience in that way. And then there's everybody's individual way of um, translating the impression to the score. 
then you have the difficulty of comparing um, uh, the different players who are very different kinds of players um, and often playing very different repertoires. So you, uh, it really is the cliche of comparing apples to oranges to pomegranates um, to, um, to any other vegetable you want to think of. Um, so um, there's that problem and you know, trying to contain that by having some pieces be the same so that you actually have a little bit of reduction of variation is one strategy. But of course, that makes it a very tiring experience for any audience that's there. You know, the judges don't mind because they're used to that. But um, the, if you want a public, they find that very boring. Um, and finally, you have the difficulty when it comes to the final del deliberations of harmonizing tastes. So, you know, one of the pleasures of being in, in, in the arts and definitely in classical music is to have very different reactions and responses and, um, and tastes or how you like your Schubert played, and that can change day to day, um, you know, within reason, of course, but um, uh, trying to make those harmonize is the goal of the competition, and yet that's not the way that musical life evolves in, an, in, a, in, in any other situation in which these professionals find themselves. And so trying to adjudicate that is, is the challenge of competitions. And they're constantly drawing back to those um, ideas of civility about what, what fairness is, how to be as objective as possible, um, so that they kind of meet this aspiration being um, this, um, this kind of institution where um, where these integrative patterns and cultural codes are respected and met. Um, and yet it comes at the expense of these kind of aesthetic ideals or aesthetic ways of being. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the things that struck me reading this particular as uh, part of the book was, was the irony that so much of it seemed to be what we see played out, you know, on television on a Saturday night, you know, the kind of, um, ostentatious eye rolling or, you know, passive aggressive, um, you know, forms of writing by jurors, you know, to signal that they're bored or whatever. And then, you know, other, other jurors speaking out in defense of candidates who have been unfairly judged. And, you know, and, and this kind of performance that we, you know, really kind of would be um, quite cautious about um, connecting to the kind of, you know, Elias development of civilization narrative. And yet um, is kind of shot through with with the uh, you know the kind of involvement of um, the audience or, or, or the public, and this obviously is the um, the source um, of the discussion in in the penultimate chapter of the book. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about the two terms, the idea of the public and the idea about the audience, before we um, maybe move on to talk about Adorno. Sure. Well, and this was, um, you know, for for someone like me who who spent most of their life thinking they were going to be a professional musician and in competitions constantly um, attending these events <laughs> as a member of the public was completely new to me um, because, you know, I'd, I'd only ever competed in them. Uh, and so uh, it, it was kind of an ethnographic choice to do uh, my study by attending as a member of the public so that I had... I, I experienced and saw it from this other side. And one of the things I had no idea as a performer was how much the audience talked. <laughs> and it wasn't just friendly chit-chat, how's your mother stuff. Um, as soon as a performer stopped, I, it didn't matter where I was in the hall. 
Um, in, it didn't matter if I'd ever, you know, strangers would turn to me and demand an opinion of what I'd just heard. And I had not encountered that before. When I go to concerts, that never happens. But when I go to competitions, it happens every time. And there is heated discussion. And, you know, there are groups of friends that attend and compare notes during the intermission. They go out for dinner together to argue about who they think should win. There is intense scrutiny and analysis of results at every stage of the performance. Sometimes this spills out online onto on, uh, online forums that are sometimes hosted by the competition, sometimes not. But um, there is all of this activity. And so that's what I'm trying to get at between the difference between an audience member and a public, because, um, you know, here here I, I look to um, the great critical theorists to, to understand, uh, to think about the audience as as you know the kind of receiving role right being attending attending to uh, uh the the artistic event and you know that that's a critical role because without an audience and uh, you know also in the performance perspective if you have a symbolic display if you're displaying the meaning of your social situation it has to be for somebody and um you know while at competitions it's complicated because there is a jury who is the main audience in some respects um it isn't a public event it wouldn't be a competition if they didn't have have other members of the public there. But to, to the difference for me between this audience and the public is that um, people who attend competitions become a public when they start to debate, when they want to talk about why a performance was better than another one, but also the bigger questions about who is on the jury, should they be on the jury, what are they taking into account when they're making these decisions, right? So they really are questioning every aspect of the institution, and they're really um, invested in, in it being right. And, and they too keep referring back to these cultural codes of civility to critique um, the organization because they only want to kind of invest and support a decision for an organization that they think has done things um, in, in a justifiable, honorable way. I'd, I'd like to kind of probe that a little bit more, actually, because um, what, one of the things that um, we've done in our conversation is give a sense of, I suppose, the kind of empirical elements of the book. Um, mm -hmm. the, the book is full of really rich theoretical um, reflection and and i think maybe one of the ways we could start to conclude actually is is on a particular theoretical intervention you make um in this chapter which is to speak um and you know you kind of touched on this already which is to speak to the work uh, of theodore adorno and and you know the kind of um ideas you've been talking about that someone like adorno you know is kind of bound up with but also is quite critical of it is something that you try and build on and, and almost kind of reconsider and, and, and reconstitute. So I wonder if you could um, just illustrate the sort of theoretical work you're doing with um, your use of Adorno in, in that um, chapter six. Yes, well, I know I'm I'm unusual as a socio sociologist who's sympathetic with Adorno because um, I, I understand why uh, his reputation is what it is, and and there are some unfortunate um, 
unfortunate uh, arguments that he's made. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that it's it's a bit of a baby has been thrown out with the bathwater situation with Adorno because there is still, I think, something to be retrieved. So this was my somewhat more um, provocative um, argument in this chapter is that is to kind of retrieve and rehabilitate his infamous typology of listeners, because um, this is one of the, uh, uh, the, the the pieces of his his work that is often, you know, kind of brought out to show that this man is a is a horrible elitist because he 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 creates a typology that seems to imply a hierarchy of listeners. And of course, at the top are people who can listen like him because he um he, he he can understand the structure of the the musical text being presented, um, and he of course denigrates listeners who are more interested in the kind of emotional experience that they might have triggered by listening to music, or even worse, um, cultural you know, people who are more like culture consumers who focus on the wrong bits. Mm. Right? They, they focus on the trivia. They focus on the you know they're the ones who are fascinated by virtuosity and they don't understand anything about music and 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 they're kind of manipulated. By the wrong stuff and and right so um so uh basically this is this is a a, a, a highly critiqued uh typology of his and yet i i thought there's still something to this here because when i was observing and thinking about what it is that the audience is doing when they're there um there were you know kind of identifiable subject positions. Um, so I like the idea of there being a typology to describe a kind of orientation you can have to this uh, competition event. Um, and that, but that, and you can shift in and out of these over time, depending on how the event proceeds. So, um, I, I retained some of what, uh, Adorno was talking about there because some of these listeners are really only concerned with how the music was played. And they are, uh, when members of the audience get together and talk about what they liked about a performer, they're really only talking about, you know, how fast the second movement was and, you know, all of these kind of details um, that are, you know, much more kind of musician, technical, um, specialist concerns. But then there are other people, you know, or, or, or they get caught up in another aspect of the event and they move into a different subject position. So um, they can find themselves becoming more of an emotional listener. Um, and, and also to remember that there are, uh, the audience also contains people who have different functions in the competition itself and that this can affect their experience of the competition. So if you are, which is very common in many competitions, hosting one of the competitors, um, it kind of, you have this, uh, it, it doesn't take long for this um, intense kind of uh, bond to form where that feels like a member of your family. So your orientation to the event is primarily emotional. <laughs> and if that person gets um, eliminated, then you do become what we could call a resentment listener because you feel like your um, uh, it's been spoiled for you and you can't really uh, come to be uh, rooting for any of the other candidates. And depending on one's level of technical proficiency and background in music and depending on one's role in the proceedings if you're trying to be neutral if you don't want to be neutral um, you will move in and out of these subject positions yeah and it, it's a really useful way to both you know kind of mount a, a little bit of a defense of adorno but also 
um, to show us how these kind of grander sociological theories can explain, you know, the sorts of moments you were talking about in terms of people asking you, what did you think, you know, like mm-hmm. gives your comments and, and that kind of explosion of discourse. You also talk about this explosion of discourse online as well. So it, it's both the kind of, um, I think, a, a useful sort of illustration to people of where these kind of grander theories can be useful, but also it allows you to put exactly your ideas in uh, into play in terms of your own experiences of being at the competitions. I think we might finish with precisely the question you ask in the conclusion of the book, what is the future of, of music competitions? And interestingly, that conclusion is very, very short. It's only sort of two or three uh, pages long. So um, I wonder if you could just kind of summarize that as a way to finish. Yes. Well, um, it, it, it is, you know, it is the question for not just the people who run these organizations, but, um, but musicians themselves, because it is, uh, it's always been a competitive field. It is difficult to become a concert pianist or violinist or cellist, right? This is not an easy um, scene in which to make a name and, and have a great um, international career. So um, part of what's fueling that question or making it an urgent question, at least, is uh, concern amongst uh, uh, musicians today about how it is that they can have a life in music and whether competitions will continue to play a role in helping them to have a life in music, because that has been part of, you know, the critique of competitions in the past is that they're becoming too important. And, you know, if they aren't civil, if they are damaging, then should they be playing this important role in helping us discover, you know, talent and in helping people launch careers? But of course, with the proliferation of competitions, now there are very there are a lot of them, and with a perception that other ways to make careers in the world are 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 shrinking, um, what happens if there are no more competitions? So um, that's kind of, that's a lot of what's going into why the question is raised all the time. Um, and when it comes to answering it, I, I spoke to the president, then president of the World Federation of International Music Competitions. And it was interesting that um, his answer was um, very much uh, a kind of mixture of Bourdieuian and uh, a kind of economistic answer where, you know, there is a need for this. As long as there is a need for competitions, there will be competitions. And and the selection mechanism role is, is what's going to um, uh, keep it in play, except there's always the danger of the debasement of the currency of the prize if there are too many competitions. So he anticipated that there would be a greater kind of refinement of the hierarchy of importance of competitions, but that um, that that as long as as people wanted to compete in them in order to try to get into better music schools, better festivals, better agencies, whatever, um, they would be there. Um, but my answer was slightly different because what I'd seen in going through the history was that what made competitions have any kind of uh, 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 shelf life, or, or no, not shelf life, but existence, uh, long t- long term existence, was that they were founded by um, a charismatic person. Um, that 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 this was really for me a question about the institutionalization of charisma, because when competitions were founded by somebody like Eugène Isaïe, 
who was a world-famous violinist and who was not shy about explaining why he thought there needed to be a competition that was different from the competition system in conservatories and had his own ideas about how best to identify talent that included things like take them away from their teachers for a week and make them learn a new piece from scratch. You know, he, he really innovated these ideas and then also had the support and the connections to make that work, to create a place where you could segregate violinists for a week to learn a new piece. And um, if these, if this generation, you know, Isaiah's a, a while ago, but still, if these charismatic figures are not replaced with another set of charismatic figures, um, then and they will become two truly bureaucratic organizations. And then I'm not sure um, they're they're going to have a place. So it isn't just their function that matters. It's it's how how they're characterized and how they're understood and, and kind of um, pushed by another force in the music world. And it, yeah, I mean, such is the great kind of dilemma for, for so many artistic and cultural organizations in, um, in the modern world. Um, are you going to be doing more kinds of um, work on this in terms of papers and books um, or is your sort of, uh, cultural sociology moving in a different direction or, or are you doing something completely different um, at all in terms of your future work? Oh, well, I uh, both actually. <laughs> so I've been, um, I have two kind of spin-off projects from the book. Um, one is very closely connected because um, um, I've, uh, at the invitation of the Chopin Institute, which is the organization that hosts the um, International Frédéric Chopin Piano Competition in Warsaw, I started to get interested in the the kinds of scandals that happen in competitions. And so I will be doing a much more closely focused analysis of the famous 1980 um, event um, uh, of the uh, piano competition in which Ivo Pogorelic was eliminated and Martha Argerich resigned from the jury in protest angrily and, you know, went to the press and explained why. And, 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 and so I'll be doing a, a, a kind of closer analysis of this to, to work towards a, a typology of scandal in, in the music world. So um, I'll start with what I know, which is competitions and why it is that they're prone to controversies and what kinds of controversies um, uh, emerge in this, in this context and, and maybe work from out, you know, from out from there to, other kinds of scandals in the music world. The other project I'm working on that's related to the book is on symphonic diplomacy, because I'm very interested in this idea of, you know, competitions are one way to create a symbolic forum where politics might be transcended and where marginal groups might show that they too can be part of the, the kind of the public, the musical public or the, you know, the, the civil sphere. Um, well, symphonic diplomacy is another place where that can happen. Doesn't always happen, but could happen, or at least they're trying to make it happen. And so I'm interested in why it is that orchestras are sent around the world to improve relations between um, nations um, and uh, in, in the post-Cold War era. So that's kind of what's growing from the book. But in the meantime and in between time, I've been um, getting interested in music and death and more specifically the expanded role of music in contemporary funerals. Why it is, especially in the UK, that we hear such a wide variety of music in these intensely emotional um, ceremonies. 
So I've been looking into that, you know, both the kind of technological aspect of, of you know, what are the legal and also um, technological innovations that have allowed us to have so much more music, um, and also kind of the, the 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 professional industry changes that have have made music more important and yet have changed the set of people who are involved in deciding what is played and why exactly it is that music is one of the more fraught choices for a funeral. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Lisa McCormick from the University of Edinburgh about performing civility, international competitions and classical music, which is published by Cambridge University Press. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.